poem that we know as Twas the Night Before Christmas, written by a fellow named Clement Clark Moore in 1822. He wrote it on Christmas Eve as a gift for his children. He had no intention of it ever being published, but his kids shared the poem with a friend of theirs named Harriet Butler. In 1823, Harriet Butler submitted Twas the Night Before Christmas to the New York Sentinel newspaper for publication under the title of Unknown Author. They, of course, loved it and printed it. And over the course of the next 10 years, many other publications did the exact same thing until 1837 when it was published in a book for the very first time, still with an unknown author given credit for the writing of it. It would not be until 22 years after the original writing that Moore would claim authorship of it. I don't know why he didn't want anyone to know that he's the one who penned those words. Maybe they were just personal. Maybe he wanted it to remain a gift for his children. We have absolutely no idea. But 22 years, it lived in not obscurity, but it lived without a known author. Now, as much as you're familiar with that poem, there have been a number of different tellings of it through the years. One of my personal favorites we're going to share with you this morning. It's known as the Cowboy Night Before Christmas. Tina's going to come and read it to you, and we'll put all the illustrations up on the screen. Enjoy this. "'Twas a cold Christmas Eve on the southwestern plain, and a north wind was blowing through a broke winter pane. In that sod shanty shack, far from home, warmth and care, shivered two lonely cowboys, such a scraggly pair." They crowded the far place where the flames flickered low from smoldering embers that heated too slow. Then a knock at the door and a bang on the wall. Over the sound of the storm, they heard a voice call. Please open the door and let me come in. I'm near froze to death and chilled to the skin. The door was unbolted and then opened wide, and a fat little old man jumped quickly inside. There was frost on his whiskers and ice hung from his nose. He shivered and shook from his head to his toes. In spite of discomfort, he didn't complain. His expression was jolly as he paused to explain. I was moving this cargo and making good time. I'd covered the country from desert to pine. Till I crossed the border to this panhandle land and the southwestern norther commenced stirring the sand. The temperature dropped more than a hundred degrees. My team soon fled north where they less likely freeze. The old cowman had doubts about the strange little man, but in southwest tradition he put out his hand. You can shake off your boots, you're welcome to stay, or we can help you to be on your way. The answer came quickly with a twinkle of eye. I got many a mile yet before the sun hits the sky. Could you find me a team? I gladly will pay. Then point my nose south, and I'll be on my way. The only critters we have that could pull a full load are the honorary longhorns, and they'd have to be showed. They ain't ever been hitched to a wagon with reins. They'd be too much trouble. They're a mite short on brains. <clears throat> They made an odd threesome as they went out on the range, the old cowhand and the youngster and the old man so strange. 
They saddled three broncs in the dark, freezing night. With cold, stiffened fingers, they made the cinch tight. While roping the longhorns, they bumped and they stumbled. And numerous times from their hosses, they tumbled. It took all three working an hour or more to hitch up the wagon in two rows of four. The longhorns at first refused to obey when a strange little man tried to get underway. Then one lifted his head and gave out a bellow, and the rest one by one they started to follow. The longhorns were straining and pulling together. They built up their speed, then just like a feather. On a strong gust of wind, their feet gave a bound. Then man, wagon, and longhorns all at once left the ground. The old cowboy and youngster stared up in surprise. A trick of the storm, too much wind in the eyes. Those were their thoughts as they looked at the sky. Any fool knew darn well those su that such things cannot fly. The young cowboy grumbled as they moved toward the shack, but the old one stayed quiet, pert near all the way back. They reached the sod shanty and opened the door, and they couldn't believe what they saw on the floor. Two pairs of new boots with spurs made of silver, with a note but no clue as to who was the giver. They made out the words in the dim, far-placed light, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. She's my favorite story reader of all time. And <laughs> at Christmas time, she often reads children's books to us, and our kids, grown as they are, still like to come home and have their mom read the, the Grinch and all kinds of different stories like it. And so, always fun. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world are we talking about Moore's poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," and why are we looking at the cowboy night before Christmas? There's a reason. I found myself earlier in the week, and in fact, the previous weeks as well, wondering what was happening on the real night before Christmas. I opened my Bible to find the answer, and it may surprise you to know that it is written right there for us to see. Most people skip over it, not realizing exactly what it is, but it is great insight into what was happening the night before Jesus came. Let me show it to you. If you brought a Bible with you, open to the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter. What you're about to hear is the telling of the Christmas story from Jesus' perspective. For the most part, when we want to find the Christmas story in our Bibles, we go to the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. But you can turn to the book of Hebrews and find a totally different telling. This one from Jesus himself. We're going to start in verse 5. Listen to what the Bible says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That's what was happening the night before Christmas. There was a conversation happening in heaven. That's what was going through Jesus' mind on the night before Christmas. Now, there is some deep teaching contained within those three verses, extremely deep if you're really looking for it, beginning with this. Jesus was not, as is commonly believed, born in Bethlehem. Oh yes, as a man, he was born in Bethlehem. There's no question about that. 
But Jesus well predates Bethlehem. Not just the Bethlehem that he was born into, but he predates Bethlehem. Jesus predates all time. And in modern teaching, we have this totally wrong perspective that Jesus was created and born about 2,000 years ago. That is not the case. In the Gospel of John, we find some interesting insight into how long Jesus has been around. Join me in, in John's Gospel. First chapter, first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is capitalized. The word word is capitalized in my Bible because the word word with that capital W is actually used as a definition of Jesus. So we can read this verse this way. In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God at the very beginning. Jesus was God. So he well predates Bethlehem. That word beginning is, is very, very intriguing. It is the exact same word in the original languages as what we would find in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to this. You don't have to turn. You're familiar with this. In the beginning, there's the word again, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John chapter 1 verse 1 is teaching us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word beginning ties us back to Genesis chapter 1, where we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which means Jesus was there. Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. So we can throw away the misconception that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and grab hold of the truth that Jesus well predates Bethlehem. Jesus well predates time itself. I love the way John Piper captures this idea. Take a look at this. Let me say it in an Einsteinian way. Jesus was there not only before matter, he was there before time. Because the 20th century brought the discovery that matter and time are coextensive. No matter, no time. Kind of a controversial thing biblically sometimes, but listen to the great doxology. Now, I don't think the biblical writers knew the theory of relativity, they just knew the truth. This is from Jude, verse 25. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jesus predates everything. Jesus predates everything. That's part of what we are learning in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. As I was exploring it, that wasn't any kind of a new revelation to me, but I stumbled across something I had never heard of before. And let me tell you, it has taken me on a creative journey this week that I absolutely love. It causes all of my biblical nerd sensors to just fire simultaneously. And that's what was going on for me all week long, so much so that I was talking about this with some of the brightest minds I know to see if they had heard of this before and if they had what they knew about it. As I was studying out of some different commentaries, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, one of the commentators, and only one of them, used this term, and they didn't give much explanation to it, just enough to make me curious. They talked about 
the council of the eternities. Here it is up on the screen for you to see it. The council of the eternities, also known as the divine council of God. That's all the commentator put in there, was the council of the eternities or the divine council of God. Now, I had never heard of it. Brand new expression for me. So I started digging around to see what I could find, and what I found was very, very little. I found a couple of references that go back about 500 years. 500 years. Which meant that I had to go from studying modern commentaries back into books of antiquities in order to discover anything about the Council of the Eternities or the Divine Council of God. These people that I was talking with throughout the course of the week had to do the exact same thing. They thought they'd be able to just open up some different resources and there it would be. They thought they could just go to Logos Bible Software and find the answer. But even the software left some gaping holes on the idea of the Council of the Eternities. Now here's what it is. Ancient theologians taught this all the time. But 500 years ago, it started to fall off the page. The teaching went like this. Among the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is a council. And that council, when they communicate with one another, requires unity. They must be in agreement about everything. Because if the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not in unity, then chaos ensues. And it is true in the ancient teachings of the Council of Eternities from everything from the spinning of the earth on its axis to the redemption that came through the cross. If there was disagreement within the Trinity, chaos would follow. So the Council of the Eternities says that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit must be in agreement on every decision, and it isn't something that they have to arrive at an agreement with. They don't take a vote among themselves. They are in complete unity from the outset because the three are one, the Council of the Eternities. Now, there's a lot more that goes with this. And when you start studying out in Scripture, if you have any Bible nerd in you at all, just you'll go all kinds of different places with it. You'll start in Genesis chapter 1, and then you will find the Council of the Eternities in all kinds of different places just because all of those receptors in your brain are firing and you're looking for it. But once you start discovering it, you see some pretty cool things. The Council of the Eternities. Like this, when Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all had to be in agreement. Every one of them, right from the beginning. The Holy Spirit had to be willing to say, okay, I'll step back. The Son had to say, Peter's up to the challenge. And God had to give the permission. Council of the Eternities. When the enemy asks for permission to sift you as wheat, they must all be in agreement. When Jesus came to the earth, they were all in agreement. It was not a submissive thing of the son saying, okay, I'll go and almost begrudgingly. Hebrews chapter 10 shows us the conversational aspect of the council as it was happening. Take a look again. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, meaning Jesus the Son, 
said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Now, who is the you that he's speaking to? That would be God. Council of the Eternities is beginning to unveil itself. This conversation is taking place between them. But a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When Jesus said, I have come to do your will, and this body you have prepared for me, and I know what waits for me, I'm in agreement. I am in agreement. And when you can see that, you can actually understand the willingness that was required on Jesus' behalf to come to the earth. He wasn't ordered to, he wasn't made to. In the council of the eternities, in the divine council of God, Jesus said, here am I, send me. I'll go, because this needs to be taken care of. And there was agreement in the eternities. There was agreement in the Trinity. And there had to be. Because without it, redemption would have never happened. Without that agreement, we wouldn't even be here. Council of the Eternities. We get to understand that when we study the Christmas story from Jesus' perspective. But there are other deep things within this telling of the Christmas story that become obvious to us, like the reason for Jesus' coming. He came to deal with our sin. Jesus came to deal with our sin. Listen to this. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus came to deal with our sin problem. And make no mistake about it, man has a sin problem. It is the greatest problem we face. And no matter what religion a man has or a woman has, if that religion does not deal with their sin problem, it is of no value at all. It is of no value at all. And Jesus is the only one that came to take care of our sin problem. Jesus is the only one that came to take care of it in such a way that it would satisfy God's need. Jesus is the only one that was willing to pay the ultimate price. That's why Jesus is the only one to believe in. Because we have a sin problem that had to be taken care of. Now I know that you're aware of this, but let me show you again just how deep that problem goes. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was a universal problem that Jesus came to take care of. A universal sin problem. And without him, we would have been left in terrible, terrible trouble. Now here's the cool thing about it. It wasn't that Jesus just came to take away our sins. He came to transform us from a life of sin. Now, in order to understand that, you have to understand the depth of our sin problem. And you just saw it in Romans chapter 3. No question about that. But maybe you don't understand why that problem exists. Some people have turned some things upside down in order to try to explain sin in their lives. And they've done it through things like this. They say that, that we become sinners because we sin. But that's not true at all. Here's a great way of thinking about it. We are not sinners because we sin. 
We sin because we're sinners. That's the depth of the problem. And Jesus came to solve that problem, to take care of it. By nature, we are sinners. By choice, we prove that over and over and over again. And God knew that we would be stuck in that pattern if something wasn't done. So Jesus came to do something. Romans chapter 6 explains that even more. We'll start in verse 1. Listen to this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, dealing with the problem. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We have died to the old way of life. Because of Jesus, when we come into a relationship with him, that old way of life is buried. It's buried. And we have died once for all right there to live in a new life. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a choice. We can either die in our sin or we can die to our sin. That's our choice. And that choice was given to us by Jesus. And if we choose to die to our sin, we live in a transformed life because of what he did for us. Because he willingly took on a body to become a sacrifice for us. He dealt with the old covenant, which fell short time and time again. And that's what Hebrews chapter 10 was laying out for us. Before we even get to verse 5, we're finding out some of the shortcomings of the old covenant. But you have to understand this. Those shortcomings were by design. They were not by accident. The old covenant was never designed to save people. The old covenant was designed to make us aware of our sin. Yes, it was designed by God and it was given to us in a very temporary way. And that's the way it was always intended to be, temporary. That is obvious through the daily sacrifices that were necessary under the old covenant and the yearly sacrifices that were necessary on the day of atonement. Every day, every year, more sacrifices had to be offered in order for people to experience forgiveness over and over and over again. 
It was a temporary solution to an eternal problem. And the forgiveness that came as a result of the old covenant was judicial in nature. It was a forgiveness that said, your sins have been covered, but you have not been cleansed from them. They've just been covered. They're still there. But when Jesus said, those sacrifices and those offerings you've not desired, you have desired something greater. And Jesus said, I will be that. He offered us cleansing from our sins, not just a covering for them. Does that make sense? Shake your head, yes. You want to know how you know that? Through an old King James word. This is the big difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus came for the remission of our sins. Now, in modern translations of the Bible, we use the word forgiveness rather than remission. And they are pretty much synonymous. Forgiveness and remission can be used interchangeably. But we take something away from the idea of what Jesus did with our sins when we choose not to use the word remission. And you find it in places like Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Why don't you turn there with me real quick? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word forgiveness in the English Standard Version can be taken out and replaced with that King James word remission, and it would read like this. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Want to see the difference? I know you do. Here it is. Remission means the cancellation of a debt, charge, or penalty. That's what remission means. Forgiveness can often mean we're going to overlook it. We're still going to remember it. We're still going to know it was there, but we're not going to allow it to define the relationship anymore. Remission takes it deeper. It's the cancellation of a debt, a charge, or a penalty. You saw in that clip that we started with at the very beginning, the tearing up of the debt. That's the same thing that God has done for us because of Jesus. The remission of our sins. Jesus came to deal with our sin problem, not just to cover our sins, but to cleanse us from them, that we might experience true, godly, biblical remission from those sins. And Jesus said, I'll take care of that for you. And from there, Lord, I'll do your will. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, or chapter 10, I'm sorry. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In the council of the eternities, the divine council of God, Jesus said, I have come to do your will. And I'm in total agreement. I'm in total agreement. The Holy Spirit is in total agreement. We've come to do your will. Jesus had the unique blessing from the time he was born in Bethlehem until he died. The unique blessing as a man to know his purpose from the very beginning. It was to do God's will. It's interesting 
for Tina and I now as our children are grown and out of the house and making their way into their lives to watch them find their purpose. It's fun. Sometimes it's, it's frustrating. Other times as parents, it's exhilarating. And, and then there's those moments where it's terrifying. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. How many of you with adult children have experienced all those emotions as you watch your kids find their purposes in life? Our oldest son is a cowboy. He sold some cows yesterday. He's finding his purpose, sending us videos while he was at the sale at, in Great Falls, and he wanted us to hear when his cows came out into the sale ring, and, and it was pretty fun. I, I have to tell you, it was pretty fun. They brought his cows out into the middle of the ring, and you could hear the auctioneer saying, these are the Allspaw cattle from Conrad, Montana. Nice-looking herd. And I'm thinking, boy. That's my boy. He's finding his purpose. Eli, our middle son, took us completely by surprise a few years ago when he told us that he wanted to go into law enforcement. We had seen him walking down a number of different paths with his life, and, and he had tried a few of those, and then he just blew us away when he said that's what he wanted to do. And today, to talk to him about his job, his career, his life, and the things that he's invested in, he's found his purpose. He loves it. It's no different than when a few years ago, Katie said to us, I went to school to be a children's minister and I'm not getting to do that. I want to be in a place where I can use my gifts and my passions. And, and she found a way to do that in Texas and she chased her passions and found her purpose. And today she lives with those. It's fun to watch. It's fun to watch. But it's taken them a while, as it takes everyone a while. We have a granddaughter now, and, and it's fun to look at Renly and wonder to ourselves, what is, what's her purpose in life going to be? How is she going to define her existence? What's she going to grow up to become? And, and what is she going to choose to do with her passions, her gifts, her talents, her abilities? What are the challenges that she's going to face along the way, and how is she going to overcome them? And, and to let our minds just run on those things. And it's different to do that with grandchildren than it was with our own children how many of you with grandchildren know what I'm talking about when I say there's a difference there? It's kind of a unique thing to watch her and to wonder about that. Jesus knew his purpose from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he came to do God's will. And he never hesitated. It never changed. He never wavered. He never argued. He was in complete agreement from the very beginning and even before that because of the counsel of the eternities. He was always in agreement. He was going to do God's will. And God's will was to save us, to deal with our sin problem. That was God's plan, his desire. That was God's will. And Jesus was the answer. So Jesus came. Now let's take all of that and let's set it over here for just a second because I want to tell you something really cool. When you are born again, you get the exact same privilege to know your purpose from that point forward. When you are born again, you don't have to struggle through the things that you struggled with from the time you were initially born. You get to be at a place where you know your purpose. It is one of those things that is baffling even to angels. Join me in the book of 1 Peter.
1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen to this. Things into which angels long to look. Those things are this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You are born again into a living hope. Your purpose when you were born again was to do God's will. Simple as that. Just like Jesus. To do God's will. As you find your name written in the scroll of the book. That may well be the book of life. Jesus was, of course, talking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. More than likely, the scroll of the book of Isaiah. His purpose was written there. Yours is written in the scroll of the book of life. As a redeemed child of God, your purpose is to do his will. From the moment you meet him and are born again until you die, continually growing in that relationship. That's your purpose. Kind of fun when you discover it. Kind of fun when you know it. Now, you might say, well, I'm not sure how to do it. Well, then ask God. He'll show you. It's that simple. You do his will. You have a new purpose. You are born into a living hope. You are born again. Angels long to look into this. They don't understand it. You show them the truth of it. Well, let me end this message where we began. What was Jesus doing the night before Christmas? the night before he came? Well, it would appear as we put it all together, as we look not only in the book of Hebrews, but in other places, Jesus was thinking ahead to the cross. Listen to this from Luke chapter 2. I know you've heard this before. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The night before Jesus came, I don't believe he was thinking much about Bethlehem. He was thinking about the cross. Because this is true. Jesus came to die. Don't take anything away from that. 
Jesus came to die. And he did so because of his great love for us. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is part of God. The counsel of the eternities, the divine counsel of God, says that he was there when the decision was made for him to come. So he was thinking about death, about the cross, about you, and about me. And that's what was happening the night before Christmas. 